Today's podcast is sponsored by Doit. Reduce your cloud spend by improving your cloud efficiency with Doit, an award-winning strategic partner of Google Cloud and AWS. Find out more at doit.com. That's D-O-I-T dot com. Welcome to day two cloud slash chaos lever. That's right, folks. It's a crossover episode and we've brought a very special human onto the podcast and also Ethan. He's here too. But uh, Chris Hayner is going to be joining us for this episode of Day 2 Cloud, which we will also be posting across on Chaos Lever. And we are going to talk about an interesting news article that came across our desks a week and a half ago. But um, before we get into that, I want to introduce Chris. Chris Hayner, welcome to the show. How are you doing, Chris? So Day 2 Cloud, Chaos Lever crossover is clearly Day 2 Chaos. <laughs> You're not wrong. I think that aptly summarizes what day two cloud is generally about after people stand up their infrastructure and then forget about the 12 EC2 instances that they created yesterday. <laughs> 12. That's <laughs> cute. I know. I missed at least one zero, didn't I? You probably missed an entire region. <laughs> You're not wrong. Oh, if it's not East 1 US, does it really exist? Science point. According two. to Amazon, no. Sing. <laughs> well, until you get the bill. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for Chaos Lever listeners who are not familiar with Ethan, Ethan Banks, welcome to Chaos Lever. You're our first guest ever. How's that feel? That feels very strange, especially since I know uh, in your role on Chaos Lever, you, you arguably uh, hate humans and uh, are a robot. Or are you? That is still an open question in my okay. mind. Okay, it is not an open question. I state this clearly at the beginning of every episode. I am definitely not a robot, and I do not look for humans to consume their blood. That would be inhuman of me. Well, it would be wasteful not to eat the rest of the human. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> I'm just glad you're on the other side of the Zoom call for me, because that's the only way I'm feeling safe right about now. Oh, you poor, foolish human. I mean, fellow human being that I admire <laughs> very much. <laughs> well, uh, day two cloud listeners, now you're getting a little taste of what happens on the other side. But um, the thing that we're here to talk about, we've got a few news articles, but the one that we decided to focus on is the change that HashiCorp introduced with the licensing for some of their products. Ethan, would you like to summarize what you read? The focus seemed to be on uh, on Terraform specifically from what I was reading. I guess maybe it does. Uh, I know you've dug into this more deeply than I have, Ned, as the HashiCorp product family is near and dear to your heart. But the summary was they went from basically it's open source uh, originally, and now it isn't. Now it is the BSL license. Basically, if you're going to use it for business purposes, you got to pay a fee. You got to pay the man now, and you didn't used to have to do that. There's a deep amount of irony in the fact that the license includes BS. <laughs> Saw that but too, did you? Yeah, it kind of jumped out on the page. The licensing is called business source licensing, and it was one that was created by Maria DB as a way to try to prevent the commercialization of their product as a service by other folks. I think they were mostly targeting AWS. Does that sound right, Chris? That does sound right. And I find it kind of Ironic because MariaDB itself was a fork to get away from the clutches of Oracle. <laughs> right. That had scooped up uh, MySQL at some right. point and spun off their own enterprise version of that. So my question to you guys that are deeper into the world of Terraform particularly than I am, is this change in licensing something that is going to impact the average everyday user? And by average everyday user, I'm thinking of... 
IT professionals who are at a company and they use Terraform and then execute things to manage their infrastructure. Can they no longer do that with HashiCorp Terraform as an open source tool? Do they have to pay the man now? The short answer is no, nothing changes. The much longer answer that we have to give because this is a podcast and we have to bloviate for at least 30 to 45 minutes is sorta with lots of caveats. The shorter answer is the accurate one for 99% of IT professionals out there. This licensing change makes no change in your day-to-day use of any of the products, including Terraform. Okay. And that's how I understood it. From what I was reading, the average user is not impacted. People who are impacted are folks who might use this intellectual property to build their own product that they would sell. If it is something they are going to profit from, they are going to make money from this code that uh, HashiCorp has released, then HashiCorp wants a piece of that, or they want a licensing fee or, or something along those lines. Yeah, and essentially their justification behind it is people are using software that we have spent time and effort in building, maintaining, patching, etc. They're using it for free to make money. And we would like some recompense for doing all the hard work of keeping that tool up to date. However, it does feel a bit to me like the scene in one of the Star Wars movies where... Darth Vader says, I have altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. <laughs> Terraform is not a new product. This, this IP has been out there for a long time as an open source tool, and people have proceeded to make, in some cases, business decisions to go ahead and proceed based on that understanding. And now the rules have changed. So it's like, uh, um, what just happened? Yes. And allow me to describe a little bit in more detail what actually changed. Mm-hmm. and the pertinent bit of text. So what actually changed is originally Terraform and the other products, which we're barely going to mention because all anybody has talked about is Terraform, but it does include Vault, Nomad, and Console, which would probably be the other most popular products that would come to people's minds. They changed from the Mozilla Public License, MPL 2.0, to the BSL License 1.1. And BSL license, yes, I said license twice, technically. So on August 11th or so, they did a commit to each repository where the software is, and the commit created a new license. And that new license says in the text, I'm not going to read the whole thing because nobody wants that, but the important thing is they added a line that said, you may make production use of the licensed work provided such use does not include offering the licensed work to third parties on a hosted or embedded basis, which is competitive with HashiCorp's products. So that's that's the big line. Competitive with HashiCorp's products. Okay. So that feels, well, feels a little targeted, I guess. <laughs> a little targeted. Also, and uh, Chris probably backed me up here, incredibly vague with some of those terms. Yeah, definitely a little bit of a scare language built into that to say, you know, if you don't do what we want you to do, which is nothing, we're going to sue you about what we can sue you for, which is mysterious. Not well-defined, ill-defined. Un-not-defined, wellable. Right. So a couple additional things to note about the change. This licensing change applies to the product, but it only transforms the use when it's production use of the licensed work that's there to create a competitive offering, which again is a vague term, but we can dig into that some more in my understanding of it. 
also after four years, unless they decide to shorten it, but at a maximum of four years, that version of the software converts back to regular MPL license. So in four years, version 1.6 of Terraform will become open source again. How useful it is in four years is, you know, up for debate. But I know some people move in very slow cycles where they refresh their gear once every 20 years. So maybe that's good news to them. If they're opening it up after a significant amount of time has gone by, it's because that version of the product has uh, effectively lost commercial value by that point in time. You said four years is the gap? Four years. I mean, in in computer time, that's essentially forever. Right. (laughs) Which I think speaks to part of the motivation behind this, which if you follow HashiCorp and and financial news, they're doing great. And so this this would be a way to go after revenue that would help them maybe go from not doing great to doing something that uh, their investors might actually like, like make more money. Yes. And I, I do want to touch on the financial aspect of it in a little bit. Another thing that I wanted to bring up is if you get a commercial license from HashiCorp, you're fine. So it's not like they're blocking you entirely from making a competitive offering. It's that you have to go to them and go, I would like to buy a commercial license from you, please. And then they will sell you one. I have no idea how much that license might cost. Some of their software, I already know the licensing model for because they do sell licenses for it. But some of the other ones, it's hard to say how they're going to decide to license it out, whether it would be per user, per instance, et cetera. Can I just interject, Ned? Yes. Everything you're describing so far. Okay, we've gone from you know open source to the business source license and it's under certain circumstances, it's not going to affect the vast majority of people who use Terraform or how they use it. But the uproar in the community has been huge. I mean, really loud noises made by lots and lots and lots of people. So I know you got more points to make, but I hope one of those points is explaining to me why this is such an outrageous thing, because I'm not sure I get it yet. (laughs) So uh, apoplexy would be the correct term for the general reaction from certain sectors of the community. And it's also important to remember that the noisy minority can be extremely loud online if they choose to be. And there are certain people who have a vested interest in being very noisy about this particular license change. And some of it, I understand where they're coming from because I want to come back to the fact that a lot of the words in the statement that I read are incredibly vague, like production. What does it mean for the work to be in production? Competitive. Does that apply to all offerings that charge? Or can it be any offering that is quote unquote production and competitive, even if it's offered completely for free? If I offer a free service, but it's competitive and it uses their technology under the covers, is that now in violation, even though I'm not charging for it? I don't know. Hosted or embedded? I know what my common sense says, but I but there's a distinction between what common <laughs> sense would dictate and what is legal. Should it become a court matter to decide? Words and how you parse those words becomes very important. So like you said, if I don't charge, but it's based on HashiCorp IP and it's a competitive product because I made something that does like what Terraform does, only it, I called it, you know, something else and uh, and I given it away for free. Yeah, that's competitive. Yeah, you should have had to pay for that IP to make that free product. That's competitive, especially if it's free, dang it, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> so 
Uh, production. Sure. I mean, you could say common sense. We know what production means. It means you're using it for a business purpose. It's not in the lab. It's not something you're screwing around with for fun. It's not something you're, you know, maybe someday it's useful, but the business does not rely upon it. I assume that's what they mean. But those aren't legally binding definitions. And and in that vagueness is a whole lot of muddy water. Oh, yeah. Oh, it gets muddier because they mentioned hosted or embedded. What does it mean for one of their products to be hosted or embedded. And hosted, I kind of know what that means, right? We understand what Exchange Online is. It's hosted Exchange. We understand what like hosted VMware might be. What does embedded mean? And like in what context is a product embedded versus hosted? I don't know. I mean, an IoT <laughs> device has an embedded operating system. You know, it's like, I kind of think I know what that means. Um, is it like that? Mm-hmm. So gray area, right? And then competitive, also total gray area. What does it mean to compete? Like, does it have to be a direct one-to-one competitor with a HashiCorp product that is advertised as such? Like, we stand up and go, this is our vault competitor service. Like, no one's going to say that, right? They can't say that directly, but what if it is? But if there was a secrets manager based on vault, Mm -hmm. I think that's maybe more what they're getting at, especially like an Oracle or an AWS names that have already come up on this podcast behemoth companies that can make their own commercial product based in part on open source commonly done is HashiCorp going after those folks. Right. And my understanding, or at least the scuttlebutt, is that there was at least one smaller cloud service provider that was offering Vault as a service with some thin labeling over it. But it was actually Vault as a service under the covers. And the other big question is, does this cover all future possible products that HashiCorp might decide to create or only those that exist right now as of the licensing change? Right. And that's almost an impossible question to answer, right? It feels to me like this is a trial balloon. This is the Red Hat maneuver writ small. No insult intended to the size or scope of HashiCorp, but you take a product that was made by many. It was assumed ownership by a corporation who is now saying they are the sole proprietor and the only person that can make money off of it. Mm -hmm. You can see why, you know, open source advocates who have developed for this for a long time are a little miffed. Indeed. Simultaneously, there's a lot of other scuttlebutt that says, well, look, they haven't accepted our updates to the code anyway. So this has effectively been a hostile takeover of what Terraform truly is anyway. And now they're just figuring out a legal structure to further monetize it. Mm -hmm. And if this is successful and, you know, eventually the brouhaha does get down to a simmering rage rather than a boiling over, then it stands to reason that it would expand to be their default for all of their products going forward. HashiCorp wrote an FAQ that actually answers some of the questions that I brought up. The problem is none of it's in the licensing language, right? It's all, oh, I got to go look at an FAQ for this. And how binding is that FAQ? Is that their statement today? Or is that, you know, malleable? Is that subject to change at some time in the future if they update their FAQs page? I don't know. Like, again, I'm not a lawyer, maybe ask one. The amount of gray area that exists under the licensing as it's published today, the license itself seems ridiculously short for what it's trying to describe. And so that worries me. But I do want to come back to the main point that is for 99% of users, this is still not going to affect their workflow. So if you're using HashiCorp products for internal production systems, you're fine. If you're using them for external systems that don't compete with one of their products, you're fine. If you built an open source solution that includes HashiCorp products, 
that someone else might turn into a commercial offering, you aren't responsible for their actions. You can publish that open source product however you want. Well, it's not even a product, an open source solution. If you're a consultant out there using HashiCorp products to provide professional services, you're fine. <laughs> you don't need a, to buy any special commercial licenses. And this is an interesting one. In the FAQs, they clarified that if you have an existing product that HashiCorp does not have a competitive offering around and they begin one, you're exempted because your product uh, or solution existed prior to them creating theirs. A situation you haven't covered, Ned, but um, your specific situation, you're a HashiCorp trainer. You teach uh, about a yes. lot of different HashiCorp products. It sounds like you're not affected either then. Educators and trainers are also not affected by this change. If you're teaching Terraform as your job or Vault or whatever, that's still fine because what you're offering is training, not a solution that embeds their product. That's why I say it's, it is a small minority of folks that are going to be affected this, but within hours of the announcement, the commercial platforms that I'll put under, let's say the umbrella of Terraform automation, all rushed out to their medium of choice to share how shocked, shocked and dismayed they were at this aggressive and totally unforeseen move by HashiCorp. And the problem wasn't that their entire business model was threatened. No, 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 no. This was about ethics and morals, Ethan. It's the principle of the thing, sir. <laughs> wow. Oh, my. Yes. Oh, yes. So uh, I, I would describe it as posturing. Uh, there was a lot of posturing. Does that sound accurate, Chris? Yeah. And I think that's always going to happen when something like this comes out. The worst case scenario is in human nature, just naturally the one that comes to mind first, fastest and loudest. Yeah. Another reaction I've noticed is not just the uh, the posturing, but also talk of we're just going to take open source Terraform where it is, fork it, and we'll continue development without HashiCorp and just kind of go on our own, which yeah, I don't know how I would feel about that as a consumer of that product. Like, oh, I'm going to jump over to the forked version of Terraform and see what they do because I kind of want HashiCorp to be behind the product I'm using. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I will say that basically all the brouhaha that's been kicked up has been about Terraform. I have not heard a peep about any of the other products, which gives you an idea of the user base of each product and how noisy they are. So a bunch of Terraform automation type vendors all banded together and wrote the OpenTF manifesto. Yes. yes, it was a manifesto, which I got such a charge out of. Oh boy, a manifesto. We really are righteous. Well, yes, I am very wary of anyone waving around a manifesto. It's usually not gone well for anyone who follows it, but I'll pull two choice quotes from the OpenTF manifesto so you can get a feel for sort of the hyperbolic level that they're at. One quote is, it is clear to us that under the new license, the thriving ecosystem built up around the open source Terraform will dwindle and wither. It's clear to them. It wasn't clear to me, but it is. It is clear to them. That's exactly what is going to happen. Dear diary, the sky is falling. <laughs> and then the other choice quote was, every company and every developer now needs to think twice before adopting and investing in an open source project in case the creator suddenly decides to change the license, end quote, which has always been true. Right. I was going to say, while that is a very valid statement, it's not a new idea. When a project becomes successful, 
it is a burden on the maintainer. Usually there's just one or two of uh, folks that tend to maintain a lot of projects. It takes up more of your time than you have and making a buck off of this thing that you created becomes kind of important and kind of necessary for you to keep doing that role. I, I understand that a lot of open source projects are in fact backed by commercial interests. The only way that they exist is because there is one or more commercial interests that are funding people to work on that open source project full-time to mm -hmm. make it happen. Money is part of the equation here. As much as the idealist, uh, romanticized notion of, I'm going to code for free and give it away as open source, I mean, that's lovely if you can do that, if you've got that kind of time. But uh, we all got to put food on the table. So I don't know. It feels a little bit, again, idealized to, uh, to think it's supposed to be free forever. And that's something that's greatly successful that no one should be making any money off of it. Yeah. And, and the people behind the OpenTF manifesto, their central demand in their manifesto is that HashiCorp reverse the licensing change to Terraform and I think donate it to an open source foundation. Now, I can't right. imagine any open source foundation touching that with a thousand yard foot meter pole, whatever unit of measure you'd like to use. I certainly wouldn't because it's kind of on fire at the moment. But also the big vendors around OpenTF, and I, they're big, but they're startups. They've said that they're going to dedicate full-time engineers to help maintain a fork of Terraform if HashiCorp doesn't change their mind about the licensing for Terraform. Which would be interesting. And, you know, that's one of the things in terms of hyperbolic statements. Uh, one of the companies that is complaining about this uh, is Gruntwork, a DevOps as a service company. And the chief product officer wrote that uh, open TF fork could open incredible possibilities, but it is the equivalent of a civil war. Yes, it's just like the civil war, Chris. These two things are equally weighty. I do get what he's saying, because if you believe that an OpenTF fork would be feature compliant 100% with HashiCorp's Terraform, why would you pay for anything from HashiCorp at this point? Today's sponsor, Doit, can help you with your cloud challenges. Maybe you want to maximize your cloud use while controlling your costs. Perhaps the issue is balancing resource utilization while delivering agile IT. Maybe you just can't get good support from your cloud partners. Doit can help. An award-winning strategic partner of Google Cloud and AWS, Doit works with over 3,000 customers to save them time and money. Doit combines intelligent software with expert consultancy and unlimited support to deliver cloud at peak efficiency with ease. The Doit team knows multi-cloud, cloud analytics, optimization, governance, Kubernetes, AI, and more. Work with Doit to optimize your cloud investment so you can stay focused on business growth. Learn more at doit.com. That's D-O-I-T dot com. Yeah, and an interesting wrinkle to all this is the provider plugins that Terraform relies on to talk to all the different cloud providers and services. Those are not impacted by this licensing change. Those are developed separately from the core Terraform binary. And all of them are still under the old open source licensing. And in many cases, HashiCorp doesn't own the, the repos behind those providers or maintain them. So the provider ecosystem, the true powerhouse behind Terraform still remains largely open source. And if there were to be a fork of Terraform, the providers would now have to develop against both forks of that. So that makes it more difficult for them, but the providers themselves would still remain open source. 
Will the plugin architecture, assuming a fork actually takes off and gains popularity, will the plugin architecture remain the same? Or as a vendor, now do I need to worry about developing plugins for two architectures? Yeah, and I'm going to go ahead and say, is if the open source one decides to make changes or HashiCorp does, I'm probably going to pick one and stick with it. And honestly, if most people are still using HashiCorp's version of Terraform, that's the one that I'm going to stick with because I know HashiCorp is going to put the money behind continuing to develop it. And I, I want to point out these companies that are promising to dedicate full-time employees to work on an open source version of Terraform. This isn't like Microsoft, AWS, and Google, where throwing like a couple FTEs at a project is not a big deal. We're talking about startups here, startups that run lean. They're not going to dedicate an FTE for any extended period of time. Even if they wanted to, their VC backers would have a fit and be like, what is that person doing? Oh, they're not bringing any value? Get them to do something else. While I, I understand the idea behind it, I question whether it would actually be feasible for any of these smaller Terraform automation startups to actually dedicate the necessary resources for a fork of Terraform. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's an adjunct property, but it's not whatever startup you're choosing to, to name is actually selling. Mm -hmm. And you're right. If what they're doing is not bringing in any money, it's not going to be very long before people start asking questions and asking them to bring in money. Yes. Which also explains why I've seen so many DevSecOps car washes around the neighborhood. <laughs> well, they are good at automating the process. So I will say that for them. Now, Ned, when we were prepping for this show, you mentioned that you have feelings about this. You've been in reporter mode and summarizer mode and haven't actually expressed your opinion. What is your take on all of this? I do want to mention one more thing, and then I'll give my hot take on it, which is probably not that spicy. So you mentioned the financial situation of HashiCorp earlier, and I do want to put a little more detail around that. Uh, they had their IPO in late 2021, and their stock peaked at $91 in December of 2021 and has steadily been declining ever since. They're currently trading at $28 a share. So they've lost two-thirds of their value. Um, now, in some fairness, the NASDAQ index, which they are part of the NASDAQ exchange, the index took a pretty serious dip since 2021. So some of this is just general market forces. But the index has rebounded a lot since January of 2023, and the HashiCorp stock has not. They had a round of layoffs this year. Their last annual report had a net loss of $53 million. So they really do need to make money if they want to ward off the private equity sharks that are continually circling the pool looking for blood, you know? And I think a worst case scenario would be for HashiCorp to be purchased by a private equity firm, which would then serve to strip away any of the goodwill and value that HashiCorp really brings to the table, because that's kind of what private equity firms do. So I want them to be successful, I guess is what I'm saying. Will they be successful? I don't know. I'm not a financial genius. I'm just an idiot who makes computers go bleep bloop. So go check with the financial analysts on that one. Before the licensing change, which presumably will bring more money into HashiCorp, what was the model? You know, they were giving Terraform away essentially, but but there was a go to HashiCorp and get support. Was it that model? The model that they were using was primarily offering their products at an enterprise level for clients. So Vault had an enterprise offering. Console had an enterprise offering and Terraform had Terraform Enterprise, which was later turned into Terraform Cloud, which is offered 
as a service now instead of something you run in your own internal data center. And they're doing the same thing for their other enterprise products on the HashiCorp cloud platform, offering Vault as a service, Console as a service, and they're going to be eventually rolling out other ones. So that's the way that they've been trying to make money. But I think they're looking at the competitive landscape and going, there's these other vendors out there that are using our products, but undercutting us on cost. We would like a cut of what they're doing since they're using the products that we maintain. And so I understand where they're coming from. So if I could give my just general feeling about it is I don't like the change. I don't think it's going to have the long-term impact that they're hoping for. I think that Terraform should be free and open source because it is different in nature than many of the other products that they offer. Terraform doesn't run as a server. It's not like Vault, which runs as a server and you offer it as a service. Terraform is a client-side tool. So trying to go after people that are creating a competitive offering and maneuver the licensing to find a way to make them pay for it is going to be a legal nightmare, if I could use a very technical term. I also understand that HashiCorp needs to make money and software engineers are really expensive. So as with all compromises, you know you've succeeded if everyone's miserable. And in that regard, the licensing change has succeeded in spades. <laughs> Fair. I mean, the last thing I guess I would say is uh, it's a twofold thing, right? I respect the fact that they had a hot IPO that has since cratered. But the argument to be made there is it was overpriced in the first place. And it's probably still overpriced, which is why the line has gone down for the past 20 months. And that is not an uncommon thing for any company on NASDAQ, let alone just the IT companies. Shares are trading at 220 for Tesla, and there's no chance it's ever been worth that. So, <laughs> you know, people get a little too attached to that number. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is HashiCorp makes a heck of a lot of products, most of which nobody's ever heard of. So one of the problems with them not making money might just be the company is spread too thin. So, you know, it's one of those things where this change is challenging and frustrating, but it's also to the product that everybody's heard of. So are mm -hmm. they trying to do this because they need to buffer up the finances with their cash cow? Maybe they need to look internally and kind of lean up their own company, make some hard decisions about the structure that they want to do and pursue going forward and not have 11 different products in the marketplace. It can be very difficult to sacrifice your babies, the things you made, but sometimes that's what's required of you to survive as a, as a company. So I think it's impossible to predict what will come next. I don't think the OpenTF project is going to be successful in their bid to force them to reverse the license or creating an open source fork of Terraform. I think that's a lot more work than is feasible and it's unhealthy for the uh, DevOps community at large. But I think we'll we'll have to wait and see, and maybe we can revisit this in a year and once everybody's calmed down and cooler heads have prevailed. I think that rounds out the topic nicely, but we do have some other news articles that we wanted to touch on. And I know, Ethan, you added uh, at least a few of those. So what's something that you were interested in, in talking about and bringing up? Well, speaking of automation platforms, a new announcement has been made about uh, JetPorch. JetPorch mm. is, uh, we've got some announcements that came out on the Laser Llama Substack blog by Michael DeHaan. He's known in these circles as uh, someone who writes these platforms, I believe. Was it Ansible? He was the power behind Ansible, I think. Yeah, yeah, okay. he was the guy behind Ansible. So uh, JetPorch is a new project that he's working on uh, coming up soon. There's a Discord chat. There's some documentation and so on that's begun. It's actively in development, jetporch.com, if you're interested in that. 
Uh, I'll read you a, a summary from the documentation overview page. Jet's goal is to be a community-driven enterprise automation and orchestration platform for the modern era, designed with an outlook towards reliability, clean code and predictability, language simplicity and stability with a minimal aesthetic, true planetary scale and lightning-fast execution performance, and a strong enterprise security and audit focus. And Jet is being led, as we said, by Michael DeHaan. And then it goes into more like they're going to implement with Rust. There's going to be a YAML dialect similar to the Ansible playbook language and a bunch of other bits and pieces to kind of get you uh, excited about what's coming. There's nothing here yet as far as product from what I can tell, uh, but there is, it's another open source product that sounds like we'll be talking about it more. At some point, Ned, I predict there's a day two cloud where we talk about Jet Porch, whatever the full name of the product ends up to be. Does the world need another one though, I guess is my question. Uh, maybe sounded like to a certain degree he was trying to reinvent ansible but sort of solve for some of the issues that ansible had learn from lessons of the past launching a whole new automation product and getting people to adopt it is hard uh, i did note that he is intending for it to be able to use existing ansible playbooks with very little conversion so that will make the conversion of people a little bit easier if they want to use the new automation platform and performance did seem to be a big key here. I mean, he was talking planetary scale and high performance and gets into in one of the Substack blogs why he chose Rust as opposed to Golang was, I guess, the other one he considered but decided on Rust. So yeah, Jet Porch, that's in the world now. That's a thing. Uh, yet another project I found is called UbiCloud. And this is just something that's out on GitHub, how mature it is, how useful it is. Don't know yet, but it sounded intriguing reading from the readme.md on their GitHub page. UbiCloud is an open, free, and portable cloud. Think of it as an open alternative to cloud providers, like what Linux is to proprietary operating systems. UbiCloud provides IaaS cloud features on bare metal providers such as Hetzner, OVH, and AWS bare metal. You can set it all up yourself on these providers, or you can use our managed service work currently in public alpha. We're not even at beta yet, but it sounds interesting. You know, again, if we needed another cloud you know, doing things, it sounds intriguing. And if you're wondering why use it, they cover that. Public cloud providers like AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud made life easier for startups and enterprises, but they are closed source. You have to rent computers at a huge premium and lock you in. UbiCloud offers an open alternative, reduces your costs, and returns control of your infrastructure back to you, all without sacrificing the cloud's convenience. So yeah, you get where you're coming from. Do you want cloud, but you don't want to pay Uncle Jeff and, and so on as much as they want? Try UbiCloud. Maybe it gets you what you need and does it for cheaper. Yeah, I like it. I like the ethic there. And it's also interesting to have it as a package that I don't know what they're basing it on. I don't know if this is Kubernetes or what's actually under the hood here. Maybe they're just making it easier to consume a Kubernetes or Kubernetes-like service. Not sure. But if they get this right and it's got enough of the features that you would use in AWS, Azure, or GCP for, could be intriguing. It, it really could be. It's just, how will they stand out in a crowd? I almost said cloud. How would they stand out in the cloud crowd? There we go, would be, uh, would be one. But it, it, it caught my eye as an interesting product. I mean, I just don't know why we... <laughs> he says tongue firmly in his cheek. Did you bite your tongue when you said that, Chris? Yeah, okay. I just wanted to see if I could literally make Ned fall out of his chair. <laughs> I was very close. It's a good thing this tilts back very nicely because yeah, that was my first thought was, uh, we have OpenStack, but yeah, that was a little hard to do anything <laughs> with there is another alternative called open nebula that's been around for a decent amount of time it's more popular over in the eu and similar to, to their aspirations but might fit slightly different into the landscape 
One other quick bit of news here. Um, Google Cloud is offering 200 gigabytes of, well, gigabits or gigabytes? I don't know. But it's a free egress on their standard tier. And this is uh, something that came out of people's email and somebody just replicated it to Hacker News. So I didn't get that email. I'm not a GCP customer at the moment. But assuming that's true, that's a thing. 200 of gig of free egress is, is something, you know, on the standard tier. That's nice. And uh, nice little Hacker News article that describes it. And then uh, one of you guys, I don't think it was me, but says that SUSE is being taken private. Oh, yeah, that was mine. Uh, that's true. So SUSE went public a couple of years ago, and now they're being pulled back in as private. Not a huge surprise. I think the private equity firm wants to trim them down a little bit. I am curious to see what the impact is for the Open Enterprise Linux sort of foundation that they helped start recently and committed to spending $10 million, I think, to further the development of an open enterprise Linux alternative to Red Hat. So I would be a little concerned about yeah. that project if I if I were on it right now. Yeah, and they had gone on a little bit of a spending spree, which I think was part of the problem on their finances. Like they, they went and bought Rancher and have been kind of spreading the wealth around and a couple of other products that I can't think of off the top of my head. So once again, maybe it's just a matter of, you know, kind of like what Dell did years and years ago. We overdid yeah. it. <laughs> let's pull everything <laughs> back in. Let's let's have some hard conversations. We'll cry over cherry pie, and then we'll see what we can do in a few years. Yeah. Uh, more news. Uh, Board Apes investors sue Sotheby's, Paris Hilton, and others as NFT prices collapse. This is a headline you could have predicted when uh, it was the pandemic. It was hard times. And all of us thought that if you buy a piece of digital art, it will increase in price because that's how jpegs work so turns out it, it isn't we we're all shocked <laughs> that this happened to the the board apes collectors which includes both of you guys you guys had tons of board apes right you were in that for millions i think right <laughs> i mean i have so many copies on my computer i just keep copying it and then pasting it over and over and each one is worth ten thousand dollars at least right uh, that's how nfts work i mean we didn't even need to read the article that's just a fantastic headline that makes me happy i'm just i just love to see it I did read the article because I wanted to see if there was any justification behind it. And there is an accusation of collusion between FTX and Sotheby's to pretend that it was a regular collector who was interested in these and not FTX. But in my mind, who cares who was interested in it? It was worthless to begin with, and it's worthless now. And that's the thing. I mean, there was all this hype around them. NFTs were all the rage. They seemed like there was six months to a year there. We were talking about crypto and NFTs and what you're going to do on the blockchain and you know all the Web3 stuff. And we even did a show about Web3, trying to figure out if there was anything real there, what the technology was and actual use cases other than Ponzi schemes and scams. And uh, I think we came up fairly dry on that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a lot. And so a, a story like this is just inevitable because there literally was millions of dollars getting sunk into this this marketplace that, of course, collapsed once we all moved on as a society to do something outside of our homes as uh, as the pandemic has faded out, thankfully. Nope, not me. I refuse to go outside. <laughs> I don't believe outside exists. I've seen Ready Player One. I know how it works. Yeah. That was a great documentary. I hope they come out with another one. In the words of a friend of mine, outside is why they made inside. <laughs> so there, here you go. All right. And one of you guys had a, a grouping of articles under the category, poor, poor generative AI can't catch a break. Yeah, I had a little threefer, a little threefer for you guys, because a couple of things came out in quite short order that mm -hmm. I think are all sort of, you know, uh, variations on a theme. Indeed. The first one is uh, from DEFCON. 
which for those not in the know is an annual hacker convention that's been held in Vegas for something like 30 years. And for those that are in the know, yes, DEF CON was in fact not canceled. You don't get it, Ned. It's not important. Okay. Um, as part of the DEF CON shenanigans, they have sort of open competitions every year to hack one type of thing or another, capture the flag type of stuff, all kinds of different games. One of the things they did this year was go after generative AI from a number of vendors. So the llamas, the chat GPTs, the Google bards, I'm sure there are more. So basically two or 300 dedicated sarcastic hacker types sat in a room and attacked generative AI and generative AI did not do great. I'm shocked. Now, shocked, sir. First thing to note is this was only by manipulating prompts, keyboard talking to the AI. So no behind the scenes shenanigans, no hacking from outside, just chatting directly through the interface you're supposed to use. Within a few hours, these competitors were able to get the AI to give out credit card number information with no additional authentication, give detailed instructions on how to use AirTags to stalk another person, and my personal favorite, unironically insist that 9 plus 11 equals 21. Yikes. <laughs> Good stuff. Story number two. Driverless cars got a big bump in San Francisco as the city expanded the allowable uses of the technology on city streets. Under tremendous controversy, I might add. Mm -hmm. This self-driving technology is the same technology, you'll remember, that is stymied completely by someone putting a traffic cone on the car's hood. And they're just, you know, out there now, driving around. Mm -hmm. And you can get a ride in one of these robo-taxis. That's a thing. You can actually get in a driverless vehicle and be taken from point A to point B in certain markets, San Francisco being chief among them. Mm -hmm. And if you do, the car might drive you directly into a patch of wet pavement. <laughs> Yay. As a result of this fun and many other not fun incidents, uh, driverless car company Cruise was made to half their fleet as regulators are increasingly probing these, quote, recent concerning incidents. Did they not see the last three years? They're busy playing Parcheesi? I don't know. I'm guessing not. It would appear not. The story about it driving into wet pavement, it was, it was concrete or whatever it was. It was a construction zone. It was clearly marked. There were, uh, I believe there were flaggers uh, or people holding signs, et cetera. And this thing still managed to drive right into the project and get stuck in, I don't know if it was concrete or whatever it was, but yeah, the vehicle actually got stuck. Right. It wasn't just, it couldn't tell that it was something it shouldn't drive over. It was like well marked out. And so that was a little disheartening because it's like, okay, guys, we've been at this training for a lot of years. You would think we'd be past that part now. But I guess if it is stymied by the, the cone on the hood, then, you know, cones on the road maybe also are difficult. Right. And the problem here is AI only knows what it's programmed to know. And these are crazy edge cases, but they're crazy mm. edge cases that even the dimmest of human drivers would recognize as something that needs to at least have the vehicle stopped so that one could investigate. The AI, not having that knowledge, just chugs right along. And, you know, we can make funnies out of it because driving a driverless car into a uh, wet pavement is, in fact, funny, objectively. <laughs> yes. But a driverless car driving into a crime scene or interfering with an ambulance driving someone to a hospital, both of which have also happened, mm. is not as funny. No. Though I did hear that they changed the horn sound to the sad trombone, and I appreciate that. <laughs> and we're, we're back to funny again. Yay! Well done. <laughs> we did it. Finally, um, just an update on a long, really not debated question. Do these generative AI tools that we're all making so much fuss about contain training data that was in fact based on copyrighted work? Well, a couple weeks ago, three authors started a lawsuit 
And based on discovery, the answer seems to be yes. Books 3, a data set used to train Meta's Llama, Bloomberg GPT, which I don't think I knew existed, and Eleuther APT, contains 170,000 copyrighted books from Stephen King and other authors. Quote, more than 30,000 titles are from Penguin, Random House, and its imprints, 14,000 from HarperCollins, 7,000 from Macmillan, 1,800 from Oxford University Press, and 600 from Verso. Not a great start in terms of the whole we're doing this without copyrighted works argument, I don't feel. Although, I am now strongly considering asking ChatGPT to start writing like birthday texts to friends in the style of Stephen King. <laughs> It'll be 120,000 words long and everyone will be uncomfortable. Happy birthday. <laughs> but at least the characters will be well-developed by the end of the text. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for the news this week. Thank you to everybody out there for listening. Virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you're interested in knowing more about Chaos Lever, you can find that podcast at chaoslever.com. If you want to know more about Day 2 Cloud, you can find that at day2cloud.io. And if you have suggestions for future shows, you can fill out the form that is on the day2cloud.io website. Did you know that Packet Pushers also has a weekly newsletter and it is stuffed to the gills with the best stuff that we found on the internet, plus our own feature articles and commentary. It is called Human Infrastructure Magazine, and it is fantastic, free, and does not suck. You can get the next issue via packetpushers.net slash newsletter. And until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.